You are listening to the Enormo Cast. If there's one thing that's held true in climbing for 30 years, it's that you can't kill the damn mythos. That's right. Sportiva's famous mythos climbing shoe is still as popular as ever after 30 years edging, smearing, and crack climbing worldwide. And to celebrate the start of its dirty 30s, Sportiva's issuing the Mythos 30th Anniversary Edition. Same cult classic design, but built from eco-friendly materials and manufacturing, and with a jaunty color twist. How jaunty? Well, you know how those euros roll. What also remains is the comfort and performance of the stalwart classic. Comfort and performance, you cry. I call foul, Calouse. That really is the magic of the mythos, especially if your quiver needs an all-day shoe that will caress your toes like a trip to the spa. Because let's face it, aggressive shoes are great for the short shots, but it's hard to climb your best on pitch 12 when you feel like somebody pounded your toes flat with a ball-peen hammer. So if you're feeling legendary, then have a look at the 30th anniversary mythos and the more subdued flash of the eco mythos at sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to peterwgilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the Enormacast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's peterwgilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is June 17th, 2021, about 9.30 here in Colorado, and this is episode 222 of the Enormacast, a conversation with climber musician Harvey Wright. 
So today we're coming at you with sort of the everyman podcast. In this case, everyman. The people ask me for a sort of the every person podcast occasionally. Like, let's interview some climber who's just like the rest of us. And I'll tell you what, it's a little bit of a hard sell. Just getting on a mic with some pretty good climber who goes climbing occasionally and is mostly successful. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just hard to figure out what the story is there. I mean, myself included, like I posted an interview that I did with Nugget a few episodes ago where we talked about my past, all the things I used to do climbing in the past. And sure, I'm a pretty good climber still, okay climber in the grand scheme of things. And if I did an interview about the climbing I do now, you know, it'd be it'd be one of those uh, those sleep aids that you can get to put on in the background while you try to fall asleep. Because frankly, I just go ahead and climb little sport routes, and I dink around on them until I can do them. Sometimes, if I'm lucky, after weeks of trying. So yeah, I get some work done. I go to rifle, try the project, come home. Hmm. <sighs> Yeah, not that interesting, frankly. Without the Enorma cast, I'm just some some weekend warrior, frankly. So I'm willing to consider it the Every Person podcast, but I got to feel like there's some little spice there, some little bit to get into. Maybe just a really great storyteller or a really charismatic person. And yes, every person has a story. Everyone's a unique flower. And if I was just better at this, I could dig the story out of all of y'all. And everybody's an every person, even those, even those sponsored climbers. Not always that interesting either. Anyhow, I digress. What we have here starts out as an every person podcast, but it doesn't stay there. Because Harvey Wright is a decent fair to Midland trad climber from up in Vancouver. But we've got an angle here. Harvey Wright is starring in a film that's out right now, sort of, at film festivals. I'll give you some beta here in a minute about how to see it, because we do talk about the film in here. But yeah, Harvey is the subject of this film, and the film is pretty wild, and it caught my attention. And so we've been in touch, and we decided to give an interview a try. And the film kind of starts out like this, uh, you know, climbing saved me sort of angle. And that's what the filmmakers, Casey Dubois and Zach Hoffman, had in mind initially. But... It turns out that climbing didn't save Harvey, or hasn't yet, and probably alone will not. Harvey struggles with mental health. He struggles with some level of alcohol and drug addiction, though addiction may be a little heavy. Let the clinicians decide that. But nevertheless, Harvey uses it to self-medicate on occasion, sometimes pretty heavily. But yeah, I don't want to get get into definitions there. Nevertheless, What starts out as this story of a renaissance of cleaning himself up because of his love for climbing turned into much more of a roller coaster. And we talk about that here on the podcast. Yes, I sort of fall into that camp of believing that climbing can save you from everything, but I'm not that naive. We've been down that road on the Enormacast before. It doesn't quite work that way. We know that. Yes, it can be part of a therapy. Yes, it can be a way of making yourself physically healthy and at times mentally healthy, but it's not the only ingredient. So yeah, this interview kind of starts out every man talking about climbing, talking about what Harvey got into and how fast he got into it and what he got done. Some good storytelling on Harvey's part, hijinks on the cliffs, the 
then like a kettle, it starts to hiss and simmer at the end. And we get into the deep shit back there. Stick around through the whole thing. You always do that, don't you? Stick around to the end. Anyhow, the film, Crux, it is available right now as we speak, unless you're listening to this a couple months from now. But you can see it until June 25th if you want to buy a pass to the Smoky Mountain Film Festival. That's at smokymountainfilmfestival.festivy.com org, com org, yes, com, dot com. Anyway, Google the Smoky Mountain Film Festival. You'll figure it out. I'm sure they would love your business. It's online now. So if you want to watch the film before this, it's Crux. If you want to watch it after, you can check it out there. And also you can follow Crux Documentary on Facebook, where throughout the summer it'll be coming up in festivals. So probably these online festivals will be available later in the summer to buy tickets to. Watch it. It's intense. Take some wild turns. Not what you might expect. Okay, let's get to it. A conversation with Harvey Wright. If there's one word in climbing that gets me excited to tune in, pay attention, and be inspired, it's Babsy. That's right. Nobody climbs like the enormous cast well-known crush, Babsy Zangirl. Nobody and Black Diamond has supported Babsy and her boyfriend, whatever his name is, through big walls, hard sport, and hair-raising trad for several years. And now Beatty is offering the Babsy edition of their legendary Solution Harness. Light enough for sport, burly enough for walls. The Solution is the do-everything, anytime harness. And the Babsy edition has the rise and fit for a woman's body. And I believe each and every harness is blessed by Babsy herself, though don't call me on that. So do you want to climb like Babsy Zangirl? Well, let's face it, we're probably all out of luck on that front. But women climbers out there can at least get a glimpse of greatness and feel good in a Babsy Edition Solution Harness from Black Diamond. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast, and I'd like to think Babsy tunes in once in a while too. I guess I guess I'll tell the full story, really. Yeah, yeah. If that's all right. Yeah, man. I mean, my I definitely wasn't that outdoorsy, although I I always enjoyed adventures, um but mostly like th- through my whole early adulthood, you know, from the time that I moved away from home till I was 28, my whole focus was just around partying. Um mm-hmm. I moved out to Vancouver when I was 18 and I had already been DJing a lot and, you know, every four nights a week, my main focus was just being in nightclubs and, and partying as hard as I could. And that, okay. that went pretty good for a number of years. Um, I was into doing like, I don't know, like jackass types stunts and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and liked cliff jumping and being out in the wilderness but really like my main focus was doing drugs and drinking alcohol and having the best time that i could and i did you know until eventually it did end up start start to cause some problems in my life as it does i'd had a few severe injuries i mean up to this point i've had seven concussions just from stupid stuff, snowboarding, um, 
jumping off stuff, just a lot of injuries just from living a, a reckless lifestyle. But in 2014, I was in a really bad car accident and, uh, I was just about to get married at that point. And, um, I ended up getting married about six months after this car accident happened, but this, this car accident changed my life. I was, uh, luckily I walked away from it, but it kind of just diminished my ability to operate to a lower level. It was really difficult because I, I've broken tons of bones in my life and had tons of surgeries and all those things. But when you break a bone and someone's like, okay, well, we'll do this surgery. You're going to have eight weeks of recovery time. Then you're going to have to take it easy for a bit and then you're better, right? But with soft tissue damage in your lower back, it's a lot harder to quantify. So mm -hmm. I was a 25 year old that just like was in pain all the time not enough to stop me from working or anything like that, but enough to just bum me out. And mm -hmm. from then on, my, I started drinking more and more, less of a way to have a good time and just a way to self-medicate. And uh, six months after that car accident, I broke my leg. And then six months after that, I got in a terrible bicycle crash where I got such a bad concussion that I nearly died. And during all of that time, this marriage I was in ended and I was spending a lot of time on the couch and I was watching a lot of Netflix and YouTube and I started watching movies about people climbing. And I, I watched this talk that Ed Beasters did. I think it was on National Geographic Live where he's talking about, I think it's called The Will to Climb. And uh, he's talking about him doing the the 14, the 8,000 8, meter peaks. And I was just like, man, that looks wild. Like maybe I could, maybe I could do something like that. And I was like 50 pounds overweight and high on painkillers and drinking beers on my couch and just like, maybe that's what I should do with my life. Like, I don't know. And <laughs> just seriously, but, right. but I kind of got more and more obsessed with it and going down the line and more and more and, and talking about Ed Vester's, he was like, yeah, I kind of, I grew up in the prairies and I wasn't around the mountains. And then I moved out to Washington and I was guiding on Rainier all the time. And I was like, Oh, Mount Rainier, that's like, you know, a four hour drive away from here. Maybe I could climb Mount Rainier. And I started setting these goals and Originally, I thought that I was going to be a mountaineer because I was really ignorant to both sports <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. or, or both aspects, rock climbing, mountaineering and mountaineering. <laughs> it's funny to say this. I looked at mountaineering. I was just like, oh, that's just extreme hiking. Like a fat guy can do that. <laughs> like, right. So maybe, yeah, I could do that. Um, whereas rock climbing seemed way too crazy, technical ropes and, and all this stuff that I just didn't think that I was capable of, but I guess I just started getting obsessed with this personality or this, this thing that I could do and, and kind of clung on to that for a while. And then, um, my relationship with my wife ended and I went on a real dark, dark bender for a week. 
and then came out of that and realized like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? And I was like, I guess I'll try this climbing thing. And I've been a hairdresser for 15 years since I was 18. And so I was cutting hair at the time, but I was kind of in between jobs. And I decided to apply for a job at the Patagonia store in Vancouver because I'd fallen in love with uh, the history of climbing and Yvonne Chouinard and some of the stuff I've learned about through that. 180 Degrees South was one of those movies that like really changed it for me. Watching Timmy O'Neill and <laughs> Jeff Johnson out there just, yeah. So I started working at Patagonia. I kind of took a different turn in my life. And then, well, let me ask you this. Hold on. So you've you've done the couch time, yeah, in watching the films, yeah, and you've got this job at Patagonia store. Sounds like you get the job. At what? I mean, at at this point, had you climbed yet? Had you done anything at that point? Where where was the actual like stepping out into the mountains no. to climb something? Yeah, no, I know, I know. I still hadn't done it. <laughs> still hadn't done okay. anything. I'm just okay. I'm just living through the ethos of these these films I've seen. Right, that's interesting. Well, uh, let me put a marker there because I want to come back to it. Um, but before we leave, you know, when you when you arrived, you said at 18 in Vancouver and and DJing like, you know, and and partying super hard. Where did that sort of come from? Do you think? You know, I, I ask this of climbers a lot of times of this idea of like, well, where did the thoughts that led you to become this you know, this risk taker come from a lot of times. And, you know, and, and it's, I feel like it's almost like two somewhat parallel paths for a while. And then, you know, I think a lot of climbers that I know that have really gotten into the sport for good reasons and for bad reasons could have maybe taken a path like that because sometimes partying that hard is almost like this thrill seeking thing of its own in its own right. Have you ever sort of thought about like, well, who was that 18 year old kid that showed up there and what was, what was his motivation versus someone who got out of high school and decided to start a family or start a, you know, go to college or get a job? I mean, for me, my parents, God bless them. They weren't, they weren't drinkers or partiers at all. I've never seen my parents mm -hmm. drunk or, or anything like that. And I don't know, like I, I grew up really interested in music which is funny because my mm -hmm. dad had like four CDs in his car and my mom was purely classical music. She's a classically trained pianist and singer. And so her knowledge of music is, is huge. But if you asked her anything about pop music from the sixties, like she'd maybe be able to tell you who the Beatles are, but other than that, not at all. Right. But for me, I, the only channel that I watched when I was a kid growing up was MTV. And I just loved the art and the energy and the, I, I guess, lifestyle or what was being portrayed in these music videos and these sounds. And I had an older brother that was into cool music and, you know, I kind of followed his path. And, and like, like I said, my parents were, um, wonderful people but in my eyes as a teenager and i feel like most teenagers probably have this feeling about their parents but i'm talking real extremes here they were pretty square and and i just wanted to get out and have the rowdiest experience that i could possibly have i want right. i wanted to i wanted to feel 
the most maximum amount of emotion or good times that that I that I could possibly have, you know, mm -hmm. and and so I modeled my life after these rock stars, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought, yeah. hey, interesting. That's cool. I, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I, you know, I, I, it's it's a it's a wild sort of uh, thing to kind of try to think about, like where you know we all start out as these little kids and and end up in a certain place and you know sounding like maybe your your upbringing was you know a little void of that kind of excitement but also i mean it's just a personality thing and again i s sometimes see this partying thing or again as as sort of a risk taking thing that i think is a a bit parallel in climbing as well like people are drawn to the thrill the excitement the the perceived kind of thing that goes with with climbing so going back to your patagonia job your pre-climbing sort of dip into this thing you know you're you're i guess trying to replace you know replace this thing with something else replace this desire to party and have these sort of risk-taking activities in your life or was it just like man i got to get out of this i'm gonna i'm gonna die if i stay doing what i'm doing it was both yeah right i mean it was like well i've pretty much had every experience that partying could give me up until mm -hmm. you know i've 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 had it all like i've i've right i've and so now what do i do i can i can continue to recreate an experience i've already had or do something different mm -hmm. and for whatever reason the stars kind of had aligned at that time in my life that it pointed me in the direction of getting a job at Patagonia and trying to teach myself how to rock climb. All right. So yeah, let's go back to the narrative part of it. So you've gotten, you get this job at Patagonia uh, based on your personality. Yeah. The and, interview uh, was really yeah. funny. The interview was really yeah. funny because I had gone in there a bunch of times. <laughs> the Patagonia store had just opened and I'd gone in there before and I was like, listen, guys, I don't need a job. I just want to work here. I'm like, I'm already making right. enough money as a hairdresser, but I just want to come in and work here because I want to be around what you guys are doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to work at a different outdoor company. I, I only wanted to work for Patagonia because I was absolutely romanced by the whole thing that they were doing. I told them I was sure. I was like, I'll work for free. Like, I'll come in on Sundays and work for free. And they're like, well, you can't really do that. So the, the interview at Patagonia was for my job there for the first time was was pretty funny. It was it was like a two hour long hang with people and I fit right in. How do you then go about actually, you know, activating this dream to go climb? <laughs> so I didn't know anybody that climbed. I didn't, right. I didn't have any friends that did it. You know, there, I knew there was climbing gyms in Vancouver. And I basically started going with a couple friends that didn't climb and then working at Patagonia, knew some people that did it. And um, one of my childhood best friends... His name's Simon Weivel. We grew up in Calgary together and we were best friends in second grade. And he's been climbing his entire life. He's been climbing since he was about five years old um, because his dad is Brian Weivel, who is, uh, he's 
well, it, he attempted one of the first ascents of Saratori back in the day. Um, Kelly Cords references him in, in his book, The Tower. Brian Weibel, this old British dude. Anyway, he lived in Canmore, Alberta. And so I had gone climbing once as a kid um, mm -hmm. with him. And we reconnected after not talking for 10 years. And he was working as a personal trainer. And he helped me get in shape and lose some weight. And I started talking to him. And I was like, hey, like, you know, if I want to climb Mount Rainier, how do I do it? And he's like, well, you got to learn how to do glacier travel and you got to learn how to do this. And I was like, well, how do I do that? And he was like, well, you should check out the VOC. And the VOC is the uh, University of British Columbia Outdoor Club. And so they do all kinds of stuff, climbing, backcountry hiking, ski touring, the whole scope of, of outdoor stuff. And you actually don't have to be a student of UBC to join. <laughs> so I joined this thing as a 28-year-old guy that wasn't in university, and mm -hmm. they had an intro to rock climbing trip. And my first time, you know, really climbing as an adult was I got to go on this this trip, and we went to Squamish and just did some top roping in at a little crag there. And, yeah, that's kind of what got it started. A few months later, I ended up getting my insurance claim for that car accident that I was in. And it was about $12,000. And I went out and bought everything I possibly could. I bought a mountaineering tent, a minus 18 degree sleeping bag. I bought crampons. I got boots. I got ropes. I bought all this stuff that I didn't know how to use. And... <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, now I got the gear. And uh, a couple months after that, we were, we had done this, I was with a friend and we were, we were at this little top roping place that's in Vancouver. And I was, I literally had the uh, freedom of the hills with me learning how to build mm -hmm. a top rope anchor. <laughs> and we met these girls and we were climbing with them that day. And I was like, hey, you guys should come see me DJ on the weekend. I'm playing at, at the Biltmore. And they're like, oh, we can't come because we're going to Smith Rock on the weekend. And I was like, what's Smith Rock? And they're like, you should come and find out. <laughs> and so I canceled my DJ gig and went down to Smith Rock and did my first multi-pitch there, learned how to lead there. I'd only been climbing in the gym for like a few weeks and stuff. And here I am leading like a run out 5'9 at Smith Rock with the bolt that's 30 feet off the ground and it just blew my mind i fell in love with it right then and there from i knew i'd done the right thing spending all that insurance money let me ask you this so are you at this point you've got feet in both worlds still in terms of like you've got sort of an outdoor climbing crew and and you're still doing what in the city you know when you're not climbing yeah at, at that time i had stopped drinking completely okay yeah and so my only focus was climbing. Right. And did you find that difficult? No. Miraculously, there was like a consciousness shift at that time that just worked. And yeah, sure, there was some times where I was like, oh, it'd be really nice to get drunk right now. But mm -hmm. there really just was this conscious shift. And I was so enamored with the possibility of what I could do outside with other people climbing that... I mean, I was just drawn to it so 
directly that yeah it was just over that that's pretty interesting because it's i mean well obviously it wasn't over wasn't over forever though (laughs) right 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 and and that's i mean but that's just the thing it's like you know it takes sort of constant vigilance and work and uh from what i understand and and so yeah the the sort of miracle cure part of maybe the the narrative that we might expect isn't what we're going to really get Tell, tell me about that. So you're, you're, you're at this point, you're still DJing, you're still, uh, working at Patagonia. Are you still hairdresser? What, what's going on with your life in terms of that? Yeah. I'm working one day a week at Patagonia. The right. cushiest shift ever. Thanks Patagonia, right. Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Get your pro deal. Yeah. And, and then cutting hair, the other employee discount. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Make your 12 grand go a little further. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm at, and uh, and then yeah, cutting hair the rest of the time, like that trip that I talked about to Smith Rock. That was February of 2016. So that was kind of okay. Other than that time I went with the outdoor club from the university, February of 2016 was the first time that I had been climbing outside. And right. it's funny, like because I I already had quick draws and I had all this stuff. And after that trip to uh smith rock you know we we were sport climbing and i knew that squamish existed i'd never been there i'm i'd driven north and maybe gone to whistler to party and stuff but i never really considered squamish as a place that existed i knew people rock climbed there but i had no idea the scope of what was actually there you know and after going out and learning how to climb at smith rock I was immediately like, oh, I got to buy a rack, like, because I know the chief is at in Squamish and like, I want to climb that thing. My interest in climbing from the beginning was always to just be on a, a big adventure up high. Like, All I'm right. still a horrible boulder and, and sport climber. Like, I, <laughs> I think when I started leading trad routes, I'd only maybe climbed a couple sport pitches because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be up on those big walls so i came back from this trip from smith rock and i had a little bit of left from that little bit of money left from that uh settlement money and bought a full double rack off black diamond on my pro deal and started going to squamish so when you like kind of uh you know find yourself interacting with the climbing community you know what what was the the reaction to you and also what was your reaction to hanging out with um, this kind of new set of people that you probably hadn't run across in your life previous to that? I was definitely welcomed and I was like over psyched, right? Like I wanted to talk to everybody and everybody was super welcoming, which was amazing. I mean, one of my first main mentors, his name's Will Ferguson, and he was one of my clients because I'd come back from one of my haircutting clients because I would come back from, you know, just doing a couple pitches on a weekend and just be so, so psyched and cutting people's hair and you're, you're talking all day and I'm cutting this guy's hair. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of like learning how to rock climb and doing this stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, I climb a bit. And I was like, really? Would you, would you take me? (laughs) And I kind of had to like let the cat out of the bag that I actually wasn't really that good of a climber and I needed help. So I met people through cutting hair. I I met people through the climbing gym and yeah, I had to find a whole new 
crew of people because nobody that I knew was doing it. And that's, right. that's one of the reasons why I had to buy all of my own gear because I didn't really have anybody that like had it all. And I was like, right. well, if I have a rack of cams, then I'm going to be on a wall plugging cams. If I don't have right. that, it's going to be a lot harder to, to go and do that. Well, you make yourself a good partner too. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, look at him. He's got all this new shit. Like, let's go climb. I with bought him. a portal edge for the same reason. I was like, if I have a portal edge, I'll be sleeping on one sooner than if I don't have one. <laughs> How's your portal edge time? Uh, I got a few nights on it, maybe five, oh, cool. six nights. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Just buy one to make sure you use it at some point. I had actually got, uh, and yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not loaded. Like I have, I think like I, I literally have $3 in my bank account right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was lucky enough to get this big settlement. Um, mm. The portal edge though, I got a free phone upgrade from my phone company. And my phone was already good. So I was like, yeah, I'll take the upgrade. And just, they sent me the phone in the box. I sold it on Craigslist for $700 and then bought the portal edge the same day. All right. So yes, working it. Canadian uh, cell phone company paid for my portal edge. Right. Yeah. So how did you end up meeting these guys that, uh, that made the film? Casey and Zach, is that right? Yeah. Casey, yeah. Um, Casey worked at Patagonia with me. Okay. And it was funny because he was, he was a little stoker too. Casey's like six or seven years younger than me. And when he started working at Patagonia, by the time he'd, he'd been working there, I'd been climbing for a couple years and he'd done it a bit, but he was really interested in it. So now I'm kind of like his mentor. I took him on his first couple trad leads and he was a budding photographer and filmmaker. And so we kind of became friends, but then he moved to Australia for a year and came back and then had this idea to make the film. Yeah, I talked to those guys a little bit, but um, what was your sort of reaction to the idea that they had this this film that they were going to make about you and had this certain sort of narrative that they wanted to tell about, um, you know, your journey from, uh, you know, from basically the party life, you know, an obvious addiction to alcohol that went away for a time, um, you know, what, what, what was your reaction to their pitch, if you will? Because I imagine it was a certain pitch that didn't turn out to be what the film they got. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like, originally, when they asked me to do it, that would have been in... It was the summer of 2019. Okay. Yeah. And it was another friend that knew me and him and his partner, Zach, I didn't meet Zach until we, we'd actually started making the film. Um, mm -hmm. But they were like, yeah, we want to do a climbing film. And my buddy was like, you should make a film about Harvey. He's got a cool story. And right. so they approached me, um, but it was kind of just like, yeah, we want to make a film that tells your story of how you got to where you are now. And at the time I was like, at the top of my game really like mm -hmm. and i knew it was a good story so i was like yeah sure and so you were holding steady yeah at this point yeah you were holding steady yeah i about like you know living this life as a rock climber working and uh you know 
Yeah. I, sort of the, the good life. I was in a, a, a beautiful relationship that I cherished for four years. I like the summer before I was cl climbed the Lotus flower tower. I had a couple trips to Yosemite, you know, like mm -hmm. I was, I was psyched. Yeah. I was the, right. the healthiest and best and happiest I've, I'd ever been in, in my life. And so I was like, yeah. And it was originally this sort of hero story if mm -hmm. I may say that, <laughs> you know, of where you were and here you are now. Yeah, like the traditional archetype. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you just mentioned going to Lotus Flower. Like, when did you go climb the Lotus Flower? We talked about this yeah, there, a little there's bit. A couple, there's yeah. a couple things that I want to backtrack on because they're, they're, yeah, they're yeah. funny stories. Yeah, let's do that then. So let's go back to your these good years when you were climbing and, and staying clean and you know, at, at the height of your game. So yeah, how did you, yeah, tell, tell me a couple of those stories. Well, so that, that, with the lotus flower in there. And that first summer that I started climbing, what did I say, February, 2016, I'd done my first outdoor climbs at Smith Rock and had climbed through Squamish all that summer. And then I tried to wrangle some friends to go to Yosemite for that fall and nobody would. And I was like, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. So I booked a, mm -hmm. I booked a plane ticket to San Jose and I was like, I'm going to fly to San Jose and then I'll hitchhike to Yosemite Valley for my birthday. And this is at the end of mm -hmm. September. I get on Instagram. I message Timmy O'Neill, Alex Honnold, uh, like a few of the Tommy Caldwell, a few of these climbers I know. And I'm like, hey, my name's Harvey and I'm coming to Yosemite for the first time. Like, maybe <laughs> you'll be around. <laughs> did anybody get back to you? Timmy O'Neill did. Ah, uh, fuck yeah, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. I knew it. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, oh, are you coming for the facelift? And I'm like, what's facelift? And he's like, oh, it's this thing. And I had booked my trip for the exact time frame that facelift was happening. So awesome. Well, it's funny because people listening to this right now are right now messaging Timmy O'Neill. They they've stopped the podcast and yeah. they're like. Oh, that dude will answer anybody's message? <laughs> Fuck yeah. So Timmy O'Neill's about to get inundated with ran random people messaging him to go climbing. <laughs> so I go down there. I land in San Jose. I got a 90-liter backpack with two weeks worth of shit in it. And I take an Uber out of San Jose to, I don't know, somewhere on whatever highway it is that gets you into Yosemite. I sleep behind an In-N-Out burger that night. Little parking lot bivy. And then the next morning, I get up at five in the morning, it's still dark. I'm like, man, there's probably nobody that's going to pick me up. But sure enough, this old dude picks me up and he drives me and he's like, <laughs> he's like, hey, are you uh, looking for some money? And I was like, uh, uh -oh. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, <laughs> you're just like, uh oh, <laughs> yeah, it's dark. We're just driving towards right, right. Modesto or whatever. Right. And, right. uh. I'm like, yeah, kinda. And he's like, well, hey, I have this farm and I need a little work done on it. And we're, you know, 40 miles outside of the park boundaries. If you come over and help me work for a day, I'll drive you right into the valley. And I was like, oh, perfect. Cool. So I help him on his farm for a bit. He grew his own weed and stuff like that. I can't remember his name, but he was a real chill dude. And then he drives me into the park the next day. I get in line for camp four. I had to bivy in the boulders and, you know, I'm all scared because I'm like, I feel like they got radar and they're going to get me here. And, you know, I'm like from Canada and I'm like, I don't want to get kicked out. But 
bivy in the boulders, get in the line for camp four super early and get my sight. And the night before I was looking out on the ranger board and I see this thing that's like four Australians need haircuts, will pay in beer, fire cooked meal or a belay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll go talk to these guys. And so I meet these like 20 year old Australian kids that are going to climb the nose and they're sitting at their picnic table. They're flipping through the guidebook and they have the East Buttress of El Cap open in the guidebook. And I was like, oh yeah, that was one of the ones I wanted to do. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I'll give you guys haircuts if you want to like get me on your rope team. Cause there was three of them and one of me. And I'm like, we can pair it up. And they're like, yeah, sure. We'll meet you tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And so I still hadn't had my campsite yet. And I got to wait in the line tomorrow, but as soon as I get my site and throw my tent down, we'll go. So that happens, throw my tent down, meet up with them. By the time we're at the base of the, the East Buttress of El Cap, mm -hmm. it's like noon and I had forgotten my headlamp. I forgot my chalk bag, like all, all this stuff. And these Australian kids, the guy I was climbing with, Andy, all he had with him was a four liter, a gallon jug of water strapped to him with a sling. And that was his thing that he was carrying with him for the day. <laughs> so, so I'm like, yeah, I can climb 5'9". I'd been climbing 5'9 in Squamish for about two months. And mm. I just got the shit kicked out of me on this route, man. Like that first opening chimney, I was <laughs> dead. And we end up climbing this thing all day. I thought I was going to lead a pitch. I didn't lead a single one except for like the five, four or five, six that comes around where you can see that full uh, profile of the nose. Mm -hmm. And... I have no headlamp and the sun goes down and my friend's leading and I'm just total climbing in the dark with no headlamp seconding. Like just took us like over 12 hours for sure. Trying to on-site the East Ledge's descent in the dark. I had been in Yosemite Valley for less than 24 hours and had just had right. the best, most epic adventure ever. So that was my first time in Yosemite. Um, that's awesome. That, it's so funny that there was this freaking. I've never in my life. I gave them all uh, mullets. Oh, oh right. Haircuts. Well, they're Australian. They were probably fucking stoked <laughs> yeah, on yeah. mullets. Um, the funny thing is, is that like I've never once seen anyone asking around for a haircut in a, any climbing area in my entire life. So this like this weird cosmic thing where the hairdresser shows up. And there's guys looking for haircuts is kind of fucked up. Like, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. And pe people, people have been like, oh, like, you should bring your, like, scissors down next time you go to Yosemite. And I'm like, climbers don't want or need haircuts, but they actually do. Like, I've had a lot okay. of campfire conversations where a lot of people are, like, really down to get their haircut. <laughs> Right on. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they all want to save money too. So, exactly. but yeah, that's pretty funny. Cause I mean, I don't write in if you've seen this ad, anyone climbing, posting that they need a haircut in Indian Creek or something. I, th I think it's, I think it's just this wild synchronicity that these two things happen at the same time. So, yeah. So that's my first day in Yosemite. A few days, I took like two rest days cause I was so gripped and scared and horrified. And I was like, well, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to climb any of this shit. Cause I mean, I got humbled big and 
Timmy O'Neill did this presentation. I walked up to him at one of the end of the shows and I was like, hey, it's Harvey. I'm the dude that, that messaged you. Do you want to go climbing with me on my birthday? And he's like, oh man, like I'd love to, but I'm going to do this link up of, I think he was going to do, he was going to solo uh, the Steck South Bay, Royal Arches and Half Dome, like Snake Dyke in a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, fair enough. So my friend and I, we, we, we set out to, to do Snake Dyke and it's the end of the day and we're just hopping out on the last pitch and Timmy O'Neill comes soloing up behind us. <laughs> and I'm like, Timmy? And he's like, Harvey, happy birthday, dude. And I was like, no way. He does this like <laughs> weird little leprechaun dance and then we end up uh, finishing the route with him. And it was just a magical experience. Well, it was also nice to know he wasn't bullshitting you. Either. No, he didn't do. I don't. I don't think he did the arches though. I think he had yeah, done the. He done the Steck South A, and he'd done Half Dome, and then he ended up spending like. Right. I mean, he could have like gone down way faster than us, but he spent right. the next six hours with us doing the descent. It was, it was really magical, and the whole time I was down there because it was facelift, I I got to meet Ron Kalk. I saw John Long sitting in the. Uh, cafeteria drinking a coffee like all these people that i had sort of read about and seen and i was just enamored you know blown away and then the following year one of the people that uh was a member of the university outdoor club that had first taken me out climbing his name was zach we had been climbing a little bit together and he was like hey you know I'm, i'm thinking about maybe going to the lotus flower this this summer and again i'm like what's that and uh He's telling me about it, and I was like, well, you know, that sounds way too crazy for me. I've only been climbing for a year. I don't think I can do it. But then I went home, and I kind of looked at the topo, and I was like, oh, I can, maybe this might go, you know? I could do this. Again, thinking like, yeah, I can climb 5'9", not thinking like a, doing a 20-pitch giant thing in the middle of the Northwest Territories. Would... <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that looks pretty chill. Yeah, maybe I'll go. So I, I joined on this trip and I recruited again my, one of my original mentors, Simon, to come. And we had four of us that drove from Vancouver to Watson Lake in the Yukon, which took us. Well, driving from Vancouver to where the float plane picks us up is further than driving from Vancouver to Mexico. So it's a there's a lot of country up there. It's right. a big drive. Um, and yeah, we drove up there and Warren Lafave, you've met him, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we've, I flew in with Warren as well um, years ago, quite a few years ago. Yeah, because um, you were up, but you, you yeah. guys did proboscis. In the late right? 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a, a route on proboscis. Yeah. Amazing. Um, but that was like shit. I mean, 20 years before you, you did it. So Warren's. Uh, he's got to be getting up there. He's still flying, man. He's this, right. yeah, this cowboy bush pilot that just like picks mm-hmm. you up. And the weather was bad the first day. Um, so he put us up at his fishing lodge, which I don't know if that was there in the late 90s. But now oh, yeah. he's just got this plush fishing lodge, like with a whole cooking staff and hot tub. And, you know. Oh, yeah, that was all there. Yeah. I mean, he's probably expanded it a bit. But yeah, no, that was all there. Yeah. Yeah. And we we slept on the floor. And, uh, you, you know, kind of put us up. Yeah, that, 
yeah that was all the same and he's got he's got all these cool he's got a whole hallway that's like dedicated to the Cirque with like Galen Rowell photos and stuff like Mm -hmm. that yeah so rad yeah and and uh Todd and Paul yeah uh when they did Canadian Knife and yeah all that stuff yeah for sure so you know eventually we end up flying in and I remember it was it was a crazy experience because I had been in the Alpine really like once I'd done a lot of climbing on the Chief and I've been on Big Granite before, but, you know, climbing in Squamish next to the highway and next to the town with cell phone reception is a lot different than being out there and the plane lands and then it takes off and it was like, mm. oh, here we are, guys. And when we got into the Fairy Meadows, there was nobody else there except for three other dudes. And it was Pat Goodman, David Alfrey, and Luke forget his last name but he's a great climber and a river guide and so we have the whole place to ourselves which is amazing and mm. again at the time i didn't realize that pat goodman was like writing the guidebook on the cirque and and who these guys were but they were super chill and nice and and we had a few days of bad weather and they were putting new first ascent up on the terra tower to the left of the lotus so when we did the lotus flower we had the whole route to ourselves and we decided to bivy and do it in two days and because this was the end of august so it was august 28th or something like that so it was actually starting to get pretty cold we decided to bring a tent (laughs) i brought a the black diamond eldorado tent up with us to pitch on the ledge and the whole thing took us 48 hours from bottom to, to top and pat mm. and those guys had said that they had been watching us and they had seen how slow we were going on the first day and they were like oh they're not gonna make it but sure enough we made it and we just had this cherry weather window of perfect sunshine we saw the northern lights from the bivy ledge i've seen northern lights before but these were like psychedelic they were going off mm. and we got to the summit of the of of it right at sunset and again like i was gripped the whole time out of my mind uh the five nines are way harder than i ever dreamed they would be of course of course they were again i was just so naive to these kind of things but so grateful to go on that trip topped out at sunset and i i remember starting to rappel in the dark and i'd never rappelled off a two thousand foot face before in the middle of the night and really just feeling that indifference that the entire environment had towards me we were lucky that we had good weather because it was so still so quiet and i just remember thinking wow this is like the greatest experience of my life but the environment that i'm in has no attachment to that whatsoever took us a long time to get down we got lost ropes got stuck you know (laughs) epic for sure but we made it down and yeah amazing that was and that was my that was my second summer that i'd been climbing yeah that's astounding actually i mean it's it's sort of like you 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 know you talked about being this kind of you know you to do these sort of jackass stunts back in your party days and stuff like that and it if it, it feels like you switch that into some sort of positive you know for 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 a useful purpose here as a climber that you you were audacious and you were willing to just you know go for it and um you know it's it's sort of when you were telling me all those stories about how many times you wrecked yourself breaking legs and 
being in car accidents and bike accidents and things, I was like, God, well, how has he survived as a climber? You know, because if you're sort of that prone to those things in real life, it's like, wow, climbing could be really fucking dangerous for this guy, you know? Um, but it seems like it served you this, like, I'm open to the world and I'm going to just do what moves me when I, I get the chance. Totally. I mean, I've said it recently to, to some people who have known me for a while and they're like, whoa, isn't that kind of dangerous? And I'm like, well, actually climbing is one of the safest things that I've ever done because it actually right. requires you to take care of yourself and to care about your partner. And you, you really do have to act and behave with a certain amount of responsibility and conciseness in your decision making, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, you're not just like, eh, well, let's see what happens. I mean, to some degree, right. but like, I think like jumping off a bridge takes a lot less sort of be like, yeah, I'm just going to send this thing. than like, if you're actually going to be like a few thousand feet up a route with, with one of your friends, like you, you have to, you have to take care. And so climbing right. actually taught me this wonderful capacity to take care of myself and actually be responsible. And it's funny, the parallels between it, because I say it in the movie, like, you know, I've, I've done a lot of crazy shit in my life. And really, when it comes to the most basic tasks, like keeping <laughs> toilet paper in my house or groceries in my fridge, or like being responsible in a day to day th way that a lot of other people can, I kind of it's hard for me to do that a lot of the time, but you tie me into a rope and then all of a sudden I have this incredible empowerment to do what's needed to be done and, and, and be truly responsible for, for my life and my decisions in a way that in other aspects of life, you know, I'm not that responsible. <laughs> like if people were like, Hey, would you think that Harvey's a responsible guy? You know, they'd probably laugh, but yeah, you tie me into a rope and uh, I, I am that person. I'm that person that I want to be. I've always cared about what people think and I've always mm -hmm. wanted people around me to feel good. And that's, I think, why I got into DJing was because I wanted to be somebody that made people feel good. And if you're DJing and if you're the center and you're responsible for a party for making people feel good, you know, that that gives you some sort of uh, value, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I derived a lot of my value from my capacity to make people feel good around me. And it's been hard, like once you start to fail people and know that you're failing the people around you and know that you're hurting the people around you to live with that, at least for me, because right. it's, it's, I, I really do care about the well-being of, of, the, of the people that love me. How do you bring that to climbing? I think being as vulnerable and honest as possible, which is such a great thing about climbing is that, I mean, maybe for some people it's about being like really tough and kind of just like barreling through the fear and all this stuff, which is mm -hmm. part of it at times. But I think as a climbing partner, I, I try to just be as as vulnerable and honest as possible. And that usually that usually allows other people to show up that way and uh, you know when you can share your feelings uh without fear of being judged then 
you can kind of get through them and then move on to the next great thing that you're going to do. Right. Yeah. We've been kind of talking about this film and that was uh, one of the reasons we got together. Your friend Casey gets in touch with you and that's, we went off on these other tangents, but we, we were talking about this pitch to you, this story, right? This idea that it's it, it, like you said, a hero journey. It's like the, the crossing of the threshold into climbing and climbing kind of, you know, takes you out of the belly of the beast uh, or the belly of the whale, uh, as, as I think what Campbell referred to and, you know, you know, heals you in a lot of ways. And we, we've seen these stories a lot, actually, these stories of certain types of people finding, you know, solace or finding a way out of pain through climbing. And they, and they end in these happy stories, which, you know, yours is also in a way too, but, but it, it wasn't as easy as that. Um, so tell us, tell me again about like the pitch and, and what you thought of this idea of like, wow, I get to be in this film or this, this, this idea seems really cool. And, um, you know, did you have motives around telling your story or having your story told? I was approached by it and I'm a pretty casual guy. So I was like, yeah, cool. That sounds good. And I, sure. I understand that the story is something that will probably resonate with people or, or help people. But at the time, you know, I was just stoked and it was originally going to be like maybe a five or 10 minute kind of short YouTube botlight of like a, a, a real quick summarization of, and just towards the end of 2019, we had we had filmed one interview for the for the movie and we'd shot a couple scenes, but it still wasn't gonna be a full length at that time. And the end of twenty nineteen happened and that was when my partner and I had broke up and it was really difficult. And that's when I started slipping back into the the drink again. And mm -hmm. just as that is all happening the two filmmakers were like, oh, we're going to apply for a grant through Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival and Arcteryx and see if we can make this a full-length film. They're like, are you okay with that? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay with that, but like, I'm like kind of going through the shit right now. You know, and they're like, that's okay. Like, you know, we'll see. And being a person that that plays music and being in a band, I've applied for grants many times and sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. It's really hard to get. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, yeah, go ahead, apply for the grant. But like, I doubt we're going to get the grant for this story about me. <laughs> and then, right. Sure enough, a couple months <laughs> later, like we won the grant. We're making a feature film. And I was like, Oh God. And yeah. so I went through this horrible three month period where, I was crying every day, like literally like at the barbershop behind my chair, like cutting people's hair and being like, because <laughs> I was just so heartbroken over this relationship. And we move into February, March of 2020. And I've just kind of started to come out of this, this hard heartbreak scenario that I've been in. And I've been training a bit and I'm like, all right, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. Like climate season's coming up, gonna make a movie. Nice. I think this is actually gonna be okay, you know? We're gonna be good here. And March 17th, 2020, pandemic hits in Canada. Everything's shut down. Just as I'm starting to like come up again, the the whole the real shit hits the fan worldwide. And 
now I'm isolated, right? I live alone and I'm not climbing anymore. I'm not going to the gym anymore. I'm not cutting people's hair anymore. Virtually like everything stopped, as we all know, I had nothing to show up for. And yeah, then it just got real messy from there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, uh, that video of me being a colada song. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had listened to that song on repeat as an experiment for, I made this Spotify playlist of it playing a hundred, a hundred times. And I would listen to that playlist a couple times a day over and over. I must've listened to that song a thousand times within a four or five day period just going mental, you know, hoovering drugs in my apartment all alone and all this stuff. And it, it, it definitely was one of the darkest times of my life, but also not at the same time. It was kind of this weird, I don't know if anybody else there feels this way, but when everything shut down, like there was this weird, like hedonism, hedonistic kind of experience where you were just like i don't have anything to do and the whole world's collapsing so like i'm just gonna listen to led zeppelin as loud as i can and blow drugs up my nose and try to deal with how, <laughs> how this all is you know right like well led zeppelin's one thing but the pina colada song over and over again <laughs> that's like i don't yeah. i don't know what it was it was like a it was a weird. Well, it, it, let me sort of like put this in perspective. So Harvey gets in touch. He sends me this video of him dancing and drinking a pina colada. And I'm just like, okay, who's this guy? <laughs> and uh, we start chatting and then I get a link to this film. And, and that, that's when I was like, okay, well, what I didn't watch the film right away, but I kind of like sussed it. I'm like, okay, so here's this guy who's like, you know, drinking and doing drugs and then climbing kind of saves him. But then who is this guy that just sent me this video of him dancing and drinking a pina colada? What's in the pina colada? Okay, so maybe climbing didn't save him. And then finally I watched the movie and I'm like, oh, this is a different type of film. And where is he at now? You know, and, that, and that these are all thoughts that are going through my head. Like, where is he at now? What, who am I talking to? Which guy in the film? And yeah, I mean, it's super candid in the middle, you know, and I talked to Casey and Zach about it and they're like, yeah, we, we dropped off this GoPro, not really knowing what was going on, but kind of knowing. And then we get back this footage and we're just like, holy shit, like this is wild stuff that's been going on while we're in limbo waiting to see if we're going to make our film, you know, and I think it, again, they also had one idea that I mentioned earlier for the film to be, okay, we've got this redemption story and now we've got this whole different thing and what are we going to do with this? So how, how did you, so once you emerged from that and lockdown in Canada was way more hardcore, at least than where I was in the U S but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was like an intense experience for me to kind of wind back our conversations and be like, okay, what's going on here? So what happened when it kind of emerged and like you moved, you're still here, so you managed to get through this period and, uh, you know, these guys came back and were like, okay, now what are we going to do with this footage and where does our film go from here? Were you, you know, were you consulted in that? Was this part of like, were you part of sort of the creative team of like, well, what happens now? 
where do we go? How do we resolve this? You know, because it's not a tidy, it's not a tidy (laughs) resolution (laughs) by any means, you know? No, I mean, so, and yeah, like lockdown, at least in Vancouver was pretty bad, but I live, I'm lucky to live a block from the beach and a block from a a beautiful park. um, So I could go outside and stuff, but I still, Mm. without any of my responsibilities and stuff, and really this like, I mean, my mental health, even before the end of my relationship and and all of those things before COVID, it had started to be taking a downturn because I had ridden this huge, this renaissance for five years. And then it just started to kind of trickle away and I started to just eat away at myself and, you know, and without being able to climb or without any outlet for stuff like, yeah, it was like, what's the next best thing? Sure. And, and so I'm here, I am on a full blown bender for three months while we're in lockdown and knowing like, we got to make this film about how rock climbing saved my life and how it's been a big thing of recovery for me. And I'm like, yeah, woo, like, oh, I don't know. You know, I don't know how the season's going to look, but by the end of May, I had been, yeah, like, you'll see a scene in the movie where they have that first interview that says, like, three days sober or whatever, and I'm, like, all puffy, and I'm just wrecked, and I'm at the end of my my line. And, you know, for somebody that deals with anxiety and depression, doing cocaine by yourself in your apartment isn't good. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Hence the the pina colada like overdose. Well, that was the fun part. Yeah, the, right. the part that you like, and it's hard, right? It's I I think like drinking and and doing drugs. Like for me, it always started with like wanting to have a good time, and a lot of the times when I would be drawn to it too, it's not when I'm feeling sad and I'm like, oh, I want to drown my sorrows. It's when I already feel good and I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to feel better. And so then comes like the pina colada dance, but 12 hours after that is where it's like really sketchy and scary. Anyway, I'm kind of going down on a, on a tangent of that, but don't do stimulants by yourself. If you have anxiety, it's not good for you. Sure. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And so things start to open back up. I get my job back cutting hair and we got to start filming because we hadn't, you know, the, the the majority of the footage that you see in the movie was all shot between June and October of 2020. And so I basically kicked right into gear. Like as soon as things opened back up and I could start climbing again, it was like a miracle. I just put all the drugs and booze away and had the best climbing season of my whole life. <laughs> you know, I was only working three days a week. And I had the guys helping me out, getting me to Squamish four days a week. And we had all these cool objectives planned and, and we did it all. And, you know, we had like a cliff bar gave us a whole box full of stuff. So we didn't have to pay for snacks and the grant we won for the film paid for gas and stuff like that. And so literally it was just like a, you know, here you go. Like, what do you want to do for the next four months of climbing and i basically got to make a tick list of all my dream climbs and go and do them all and we mm-hmm. did and it was incredible 
But yeah, I mean, coming out of that, there's a scene in the film where I'm doing my first, I'm leading like a 10B finger crack. And it's my first climb out of the gate after a three-month bender. And I'm like, trying to put gear in and just like completely gripped. So it was it was a big turnaround. And we ended up at the end of August going to the Bugaboos for two weeks, which I'd never been to before. And I dreamed of going forever and ever. And, you know, I, I got the guidebook and I end up, I look at the topo for the Becky Chenard like once a week, you know, just looking at that thing, being like, oh man, I want to do that so bad and read it in the old Becky guidebooks. And we got to do a two week trip out to the bugs and got beautiful footage and met incredible people. Had a hell of a day doing the Becky Chenard. I got to lead almost every pitch because Casey was filming. <laughs> Sorry, Casey, but I was stoked. I was absolutely soaring that day, you know, mm-hmm. and it felt amazing because I was like three months prior, I was like ready to kill myself and in the darkest bender of my life and feeling horrible. And to have such a turnaround, you know, was was incredible. And the excitement of making the film kind of died down and the climbing scene ended and the pandemic was still going on. And I think I was still deeply, deeply depressed. And the whole thing was being covered up by this incredible, exciting season of climbing and traveling all around Mm -hmm. the country, you know? And I, I mean, I guess I hadn't necessarily really dealt with any of the trauma or mental health issues or or things that were actually in me deep down inside i was just charging and had the opportunity to be able to go and do all these awesome rad things that i dreamed of right when that ended it was still like well it doesn't matter like how far you go or what summit you reach you still got to come back with yourself and I did, and you know, there was a big void still, and started getting back into the same old patterns. And you know, there was because I had just come off this, <laughs> like, again, like sort of another mini renaissance of, of health, and I was in the best shape of, of my life, like, but. starting to lose that there was just a whole lot of shame a lot of shame about who i was and why i couldn't sort of maintain that level of i don't know what i was doing and it declined rapidly until it until i could had it declined to the point that i had no tolerance for my existence and I just felt like killing myself, and I tried to. And I didn't want to kill myself because I didn't think anybody loved me or because I felt like I wasn't needed in the world. It all had to do with my own self uh, like, my own tolerance for for myself and i think Mm -hmm. knowing how much people love me and how many friends i have and and how much 
there are people around me that care about me, you know, that is, was what ultimately made me hesitate from, from doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it just was, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it, I mean, cause I, again, I talked to Casey and Zach, right. And it's, it's wild because I, I imagine part of you was trying to live up to this, this document that you had made this, this film, right. They were attempting to, to make this narrative around this summit, this like classic thing where it's like, here, here's Harvey and he's back and he's high on life, you know? And it's like, it's, I mean, it's like a classic thing where the, the rock star gets off stage and there's nothing there. And so what do they do when they're not on stage? We don't expect that in climbing. We don't expect these films and these things, you know, we want to go and be moved and then go home. But, you know, it's like Harvey still exists out there. Something I'm trying to wrap my head around where this, the importance of what had happened in this document seems to have affected, you know, at least the months that came afterwards. Yeah. Well, I mean, had we not been making a film, I might've tried to end it sooner, you know, right, right. Like right. I probably yeah, yeah. would have gotten worse. But then also the rapid, like, low to super high mm -hmm. and then back to nothing again, also for sure. And, you know, having the film released, getting a lot of positive feedback and more men, more everybody just need to be more, more vulnerable. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, we all need to be able to show those darker parts of ourselves and, and have some compassion for those, those parts of ourselves. And maybe sometimes, you know, being open with that helps allow other people to do that. What were you saying about having something to live, live up to? Yeah. Like it's, it's hard because now I still love climbing and I still want to pursue it for the rest of my life, but I'm kind of like, you know, I got to learn how to tolerate and love myself first because climbing is amazing and you can get high on that too, but it's not going to solve the dilemma that we all kind of face in our own ways as we go through this, this life. Well, that's, that's another fascinating part of this story is that the film is this document of your real life. And that's why I felt like we could talk about this film without anyone having seen it because we're not I mean, it's such this raw document of your life. I don't, I don't feel as though it was manipulated that in any way. And, and it's like, so we're really just talking about your real life. And, and the interesting thing is, is because again, you, you start watching it or you start hearing the story and you want Harvey, if you don't mind me talking about you in the third person as the character, so to speak, to, you know, to rise above and to be better and to, to, to go forward into the world as this sort of healed person. But then it turns out that the climbing actually is, is this freaking mask. And it's actually this like, you know, uh, avoidance behavior. And, and I've seen that so much in climbing in myself as well. You know, it's like this obsession, we, we, we sort of laud it as this great thing, but there's a dark side to it. There's a dark side to anything where you're obsessed or, or what have you. And in your case, you know, you've, you've just revealed it as this thing that was just hiding what was underneath. And it was a way to avoid facing that to a certain extent. 
Yeah. But you're not a character. You're a fucking, you're a real person. <laughs> yeah. I'm just you know, a, and that's like the other I'm thing. The guy's trying like, to figure it why, out. <laughs> yeah. That I, why I wanted to talk about it because I'm just like, you're not a, you're this character in this film, but you're, you're this real person too. And yeah, it's, I, I just don't know how to kind of articulate it all, but we, we've gotten at it. And my question, I guess, and you know, you may not have an answer for this, but like, how is it that you find some sort of balance where it's not highs and lows? Because no one can stay on the top, you know? I mean, climbing ebbs and flows for me too, and I've been doing it 30 years. I keep coming back to it, and it's not the same kind of light and dark that it is for you, but what are your thoughts going forward as far as making sure that you are healthy and that you have a healthy approach to climbing? Because as joyful as we see what we see in the film, now I'm learning that it's, you know, that's like I said, there's this other side of the coin. When I first got into climbing, it was again, this huge identity shift, right? And I, I clung to this ideal of, of a climber and rode that all the way through. And that, that served me for a long time. And as you just said, now you're learning like, there's a there's a dark side to it like I, I think any time that you sort of put all your eggs in one basket so to say right you know we know that everything's temporary suffering mm. is temporary joy is temporary doubt is temporary everything is sort of a flow of experience that we're all kind of taking in and dealing with and as we go forward like I don't know. I've been taking it easy. I think I've gone climbing once so far this year. I did a 5.7 and almost fell off the top of it and it was run out and it was super scary. And I was like, oh my God, I'm falling off of 5.7s now. But uh, Why don't you go do some top roping, Harvey? Yeah, right? It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Just... You know, go set up a couple top ropes up at the bluffs or whatever that place is and fucking do some pitches and just like have a good time. I know. Well, yeah. And it's funny. Like, oh, I should be your climbing counselor. Yeah. Before you go climbing. I got your phone number now. I know. And you just be like, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm like, no, I've looked at the guidebook. Here's what you should do today. I would love that, Chris. I would love that. That'll be $150. Yeah, go, go, go. Yeah, I mean, you know, anyway, continue. No, I mean, I wanted to lighten it up a little bit here, but yeah. I I don't know. I'm going to work at the Patagonia store full time. I've taken a step back from cutting hair. I'm barely going to make enough money to survive working there, but I'm going to take things slow and just go out and have fun. And it's funny because I, I already had kind of like the the greatest season that I ever could have imagined. Of course, there's so much more climbing to do, but like for me personally in my life, like the stuff that's happened over the last five years of my life has completely blown my mind and is shit that I never, ever, ever, ever thought would have been remotely possible for me. Talk to me seven years ago and, and then show me a picture of some shit in the bugaboos that I was going to climb. Like I would not, not right. have believed that at all, you know? And it's funny because I'm still like a five ten climber on my best day, you know? Sure. And that's what's kind of cool about climbing is that it doesn't matter if you're 
Tommy Caldwell doing the Don Wall or, or me being like having your mind blown on a 5-9 in the bugs, you can meet those goals and have, have that amazing experience. And so my main intention now is just to love myself and tolerate myself and and give myself uh, <laughs> as much compassion as I possibly can through everything that's going to arise in the next 40 years of my life, you know, and I kind of realized it doesn't really matter how much you're, you accomplish. The, that's great, but it's how you feel about yourself in the end, you know? All right, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks to Harvey for connecting from up there in Vancouver. And remember, you can find out about the documentary Crux at Crux Documentary on Facebook. See if you can connect to a film festival and see it this summer. And also, you can check out Harvey's Instagram at Harvey Harvey. And I'm sure he'll answer your DMs. He owes it to you. I mean, Timmy O'Neill answered his. Okay, folks, have a great time out there. It's apocalyptic. Right now in the West, very hot, very smoky in most places. We're just going to have to deal with that for a bit. So stay in the shade, keep cool, stay safe, and check your knots. Oh, and here's a very special treat for those of you who've hung around to the end. The very end. An exclusive unreleased track from Vancouver's Ponytails featuring Harvey on vocals. And you can find the rest of the Ponytails music at Spotify. Let me tell you, this band is pretty damn great. So here you go. Walking Home by the Ponytails.
What if we never had to defend the cause for our wrongs and learn to be as fragile? 